First of all, I'd like to mention, for those of you who know, The Premise is the official podcast of the San Diego Writers Festival. Gosh, I hope you know by now. I would think so. Right. I mean, unless, you, unless, of course, you skip at the beginning, possibly in the middle and the end. Which credits. is entirely possible, and I wouldn't blame you. Yeah, well, you know, it's I've only worked hours, <laughs> well, minutes on that theme song. That's true. People that, that's, should listen to it. That's my to blood, sweat, and tears right there. It's a really good theme song. You're good. <laughs> I, I love it. All right. All right. So, so, but here's the deal. We have our virtual event planned for 2021, two days of programming. They're two weeks apart on July 17th and July 31st. So check out the website at San Diego Writers com. There you go. All right. Well, we're so glad you're back. I'm excited about this year. We have a lot happening and Today, we are sharing an interview that we recorded for Warwick's. And as you know, we work with Warwick's in La Jolla. They are a local boutique bookstore. We love to support local. Ooh, boutique even. Yeah, it's such a great bookstore. If you haven't gone in and checked it out, please do. If you're visiting San Diego, if you're from out of, if you're from out of town, they just... If you're a, from out of town, why are you traveling, honestly? Well, or that's your mask? true. Hey, it's, COVID is <laughs> on its way out. Oh, Hopefully. We're hoping. We're hoping. I saw some numbers went down. Mm-hmm. And yeah, everyone's getting vaccines except us. Everyone but us, because we never leave our house or this podcast room. Right. <laughs> this is what we do. We just sit here and podcast all day, every day for you, dear listener. So yeah, I, we've got another one coming up here in a couple couple seconds. Uh, this is a Warwick's author, and I hope you'll sit back and enjoy it. And don't skip the ads. Don't skip the ads. I'm kidding. There are no ads. We only have like the outro. and. Well, our ads are good, though. It's Warwick's, you know, support local. Again, the San Diego Writers Festival, which, you know, the whole point of the premise is to bring industry leaders and book authors and publishing experts to you. So, yeah, the ads are important. Yeah. SanDiegoWritersFestival.com. Dot com. All right. Until next time, enjoy this interview. Hi, Chris. What a pleasure to be here with you. I love this book. It is fantastic. I'm going to tell everyone this is Thank my you. first Chris Bojalian book, and I am a fan. I can't wait to go into your back catalog and start reading. <laughs> I have a lot of reading to do. And when Julie came to me with this book, I'll be honest, I was like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to read about, you know, Salem witch trials and, you know, it just, wasn't my kind of book. And she said, oh, you're going to love Chris. She knows what kind of books I like. And boy, was she spot on. This book is beautifully written. This is not a typical, this is not your typical book about, it's, well, first of all, it's not about the Salem Witch Trials. It's much, much different. Um, we're going to get into that. But I just want to thank you for writing this book. I'm excited to ask you some, some questions. Sure. First, thank you. I'm going to go, yeah, my pleasure. I want to go ahead and read your bio for, for the benefit of our listeners. And you can keep it super audience. short. I, well, I have it in front of me. It's, it's, it's like 10, 10 lines, so it's pretty close to short. Chris Bojalian is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 22 books, including The Red Lotus, Midwives, and The Flight Attendant, which is an HBO Max limited series. His other books include The Guest Room, Close Your Eyes, Hold Hands, The Sandcastle Girls, can't wait to read that one, Skeletons at the Feast, and The Double Bind. 
His novels, Secret of Eden, Midwives, and Past the Bleachers, were made into movies, and his work has been translated into more than 35 languages. You're also a playwright, uh, Wingspan, and Midwives, and you live in Vermont. Correct. There you go. That's <laughs> got it right. Way got more it right. Than you Yep. yep. <laughs> Listen, I want to start off with your inspiration for this book. I loved getting to know Puritan lifestyle, Puritan culture. So what inspired you to write hmm. Hour of the Witch? I have been fascinated by Puritan theology since college. Imagine a world where Satan is as real as your neighbor. Imagine a world where every day you're wondering, am I saved or am I damned? Now, mm -hmm. whenever we think of Puritans and witchcraft, as you said, we go right to 1692, Salem. But there have been so many great books and plays about Salem that I, I didn't want to go there. And I came across an obscure three-line reference in Boston's Court of Assistance to Elizabeth Nanny Naylor successfully suing her husband for divorce. divorce. And the grounds were cruelty. Mm. And there were two things about this that attracted me. First of all, when we think of the Puritans, we don't think of divorce. Yeah. But 31 times Puritan couples divorced. And there were five reasons why a couple could get divorced. Polygamy, desertion, adultery, and <laughs> you will love this when we think of the Puritans, impotence, and one time. Cruelty. Only and once. I thought of that only once. One of the 31 divorces was granted for cruelty. Hmm. And I thought to myself, imagine being a woman so courageous in the 17th century that you go before this 14-member all-male Mm -hmm. Court of assistance and say, my marriage is toxic. Mm -hmm. My husband is a beast. Mm -hmm. And I want out. Yeah. That's courage. That's that's yeah. that's bravery. And then and then the other thing I found utterly fascinating when I did this deep dive into Puritan culture is this. The Puritans had truly atrocious table manners yeah. first of all they drank beer like it's spring break in miami secondly <laughs> they did have plates but only for special occasions mm. usually they ate out of trenchers or imagine miniature pigs troughs right the two or three people would share and and this is the best part they didn't use forks. The fork, <laughs> I know, and, right? The fork was just gaining stature in Europe. Uh -huh. But Puritans would look at 
this three-tined implement, and it was too reminiscent of the devil's pitchfork. They called it the devil's tines, and so they didn't use it. And so I knew that, okay, Puritan table manners and forks (laughs) will figure in this book. Yeah. So I wondered that if like the, you know, the three-tined fork was really at the forefront of your ink, you know, your idea to bring this, this book to life. Was it at the beginning? Was it, because you read so many books to do, or at least you've read so many books on Puritans. I was stunned and you included them all in your acknowledgments. The, the research that you did is so impressive so much to unpack and everything you just said right now, but was the fork at the beginning of the impetus for all this, or did it kind of come to play as you started writing? Um, it's a great question. I was aware of forks from the beginning, but the fork wasn't critical. Mm. As I was writing this marriage, and here's the thing for the first 40 pages of the book, Mary Deerfield is constantly wondering about, is my quaff covering the bruises? Mm-hmm. There's this shame and yeah. humiliation that it was as real in 1662 as it is for a, a battered woman in 2021. Yeah. So as Mary Deerfield's husband's, Thomas's violence, escalates. I began to think about the fork as a weapon. Because Mm -hmm. the fact is, the only reason there is a fork in Mary Deerfield and Thomas Deerfield's house is because her father is a wealthy merchant. He's one of those great Calvinist entrepreneurs who has come from England to Boston because Yes, we're going to build a city on a hill, but also because we're going to make a boatload of money. And he imports a case of cutlery, and it has forks in it. And Mary's mother gives a few to Mary and her husband. So one night, and this isn't a spoiler, it's early in the book, when Thomas has had enough of Mary, He takes a fork and plunges it into her hand. And that's the last straw. That's when Mary says, I want out. I will not stand for this. You knew that Mary was going, I mean, that's the whole premise of the book is Mary's going to file for divorce and leave him. And, you know, there's so much abuse that's happening was there this moment you were, where you were like, aha, that's the final straw, or in this case, the final fork? Was it that, that <laughs> moment? Yep, yep. Uh-huh. And, and there were two epiphanies. Epiphany mm-hmm. number one, the fork, but epiphany number two. If you want to get yourself hanged as a woman, <clears throat> be you need to be smart, strong, and opinionated. You know, that's, that's what all of these women had in common, strong, smart, and opinionated women who, you know, 
lived by the mantra. Hashtag, I believe her. And so Mary fits into that category. I mean, I've written a lot of women who are hot messes. But Mary <laughs> isn't one of them. Yeah. Mary is really together. She has her demons. And in 1662, she wonders if those demons are real, not metaphoric. But she has the courage of her convictions. She is willing to go to Boston's townhouse, this magnificent new empire state building in Boston, and stand before the Puritan worthies and plead her case. And I, I love her for it. I love Mary Deerfield. I, I almost called the book The Trials of Mary Deerfield. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I want to say I love how you portray our heroine. She, like you say, she's so smart. She's such a strong female character. And it was easy for me to imagine myself in her shoes. You know, she's timeless, you know, and even today to do something that heroic and to go before that trial of men at the town hall would be difficult. And I wonder when you were writing Mary, when she was coming together on the page, did she, was she based on a real woman in your life? Were there characteristics that you borrowed from someone you know in this world? You know, I'll tell you two things. If Mary Deerfield has one inspiration, it's America's first poet, the Puritan poet Anne Bradstreet, who provides the epigraph for the novel. Mm. Dost thou dream of things beyond the moon? Dost thou hope to dwell there soon? <laughs> Anne Bradstreet was so smart, and her poetry is so beautiful. She wrote these magnificent poems about the death of her grandchild, the demise of her library, her passionate deeply passionate love for her husband, and yes, her doubts about faith yeah. and salvation mm -hmm. and predestination. So I thought a lot about Mary Deerfield, about Anne Bradstreet when I was writing this book, but I also wanted the book to feel timely. Yes, it is set in 1662, but our readers will certainly understand the reference. When one of the magistrates hurls an insult at Mary Deerfield and calls her a nasty woman. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, when you were just reciting that poem, it made me think about the pacing and the language and the rhythm of the writing. And I kept wondering to myself, did you find yourself thinking in 1600s ways of speaking? Did you start dreaming in that way? Like, I imagine you were so steeped in it. I was. But did you say and to your I wife, admit, prithee? <laughs> prithee or please. Uh, yeah. um, I am most grateful to thee. Thou hast such faith in my work and thou hast such faith in my writing. The thing about 
Puritans speak in this novel is that it might take you five pages to get used to it, but I've had literally zero readers say to me, I wish you had used the pronoun you. Hmm. Not one reader has said to me, wow, I couldn't wrap my arms around thou, thine, and thee. Because, you know, we all know the King James Bible, which is so much more beautiful than the American Standard Version. I mean, Mm -hmm. compare the King James Version of the 23rd Psalm with the American Standard Version and the poetry is as beautiful as the best of Shakespeare. And so, yeah, I decided, what the hell? In for a nickel, in for a dime, we are going to write like it's 1662 and damn the torpedoes. And I loved it. And, and yeah, I just, um, I sent out an email on Tuesday, the on sale date to all the readers in my database. And I wrote the entire email in 17th century <laughs> language. And awesome. I received zero responses saying, holy cow, have you lost your mind? <laughs> That's awesome. That is absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it sort of reminds me of an actor who's studying Shakespeare. You know, you start to think and 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 dream in, in that way. Um, I loved it. It was so authentic. It, and I was fascinated by how I really felt like I was in the 1600s. But again, I felt like this could be happening today. This is happening today. So part of me wonders, and, and I heard you say somewhere originally you had an idea, and maybe you were in je- speaking in jest, but hashtag I believe her was a comp title or was a potential title at one point. And, you know, maybe that was a It wasn't a comp title, but I mean, I wrote a lot of this during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Mm. Was and, this your, kind of your answer to the Me Too that was happening in, in America? Yeah. And all over to the world. To a certain extent, actually. it is. I mean, yeah. Mary's courageous. And it's his word against hers. Yes. Wait. It's a whole bunch of men's words against hers. The male doctor. Mm-hmm. The male jurists, mm-hmm. the male next door neighbor. Totally, yeah. And so she's all alone saying, he plunged a freaking fork into it's- my hand. <laughs> yeah. And you're asking yeah. me if I'm a witch. Yeah. Get a grip. Yeah. Or she doesn't say it quite like that. But, but, you know, that's how it feels. Like, as I was reading it in my heart, it sounded just like that. Even though you stuck to the 17th century language and you were true to the time, it still felt so like, like I could just hear her yelling in the way I would yell if that were happening to me today. I want to talk like, about. Like, why, why does ahead. it matter? I'm, yes, I'm 24 years old mm-hmm. and we haven't had a baby. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm barren. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean I'm a witch. And more important than that, it doesn't mean that he didn't hit me. It didn't mean that he didn't throw me into the fireplace. What strikes me as crazy is that there was only one suit. Only once did a woman of that time sue for divorce on the grounds of cruelty. 
And you know, there had to have been more cases. How bad must it have been for her to get to that point when she's willing to put herself out there and take her chances and file for divorce? Oh, in the prologue, I alluded to one of the most astonishing cases of domestic abuse in 17th century Boston. A farmer chained his wife to um, to the yoke that mm-hmm. he used with his oxen and then left her in the field for days. And she mm-hmm. never sued for divorce. And in the book, you you know, they tell her, this is for your own good. This is to save your soul because you're not being a good enough helpmate. You're not stick, you know, you're not living up to your end of the bargain. So I'm going to help you save your soul. Yes. There, there are two dynamics. First of all, there's the biblical dynamic for the Puritans that God gave man dominion over right. animals and he gave husbands dominion over wives. So Mary faces two things. She faces her husband saying, it does not make me happy to discipline thee. I am hitting thee for thy soul. And there are these 14 men who are looking at her and saying, what art thou thinking, Mm -hmm. leaving thy husband? What kind of helpmeet are thy really? Yeah, it's her failing. Yeah. Yeah. It's her failing, obviously. Yeah. Okay. I want to take us to uh, something that you used in the book, the testimonies that precede every single chapter. This was a brilliant way to add tension and intensity and maybe foreshadowing, but maybe not. Like it just created this tension. No, no. All of the above. It was definitely foreshadowing intention. Did you always plan... To, to do that from the very beginning or did that sort of happen? Did you stumble upon it? Like, I don't know, halfway through writing, like, oh, I'll include a testimony. Nope. From the very beginning. It's awesome. I loved the idea of beginning each chapter with a one or two sentence part of the deposition. Now, mm-hmm. a Puritan trial didn't have court stenographers. Taking down every word. Uh-huh. But they did have unbelievably complicated depositions. They weren't a fan of lawyers, but they were a fan of scriveners who would take depositions and bring them to the townhouse. Hmm. And so every chapter begins with two lines that will reveal something about the trial. And now, yeah. in some ways, This one novel is two books or two parts. Mm -hmm. Book one is the book of the wife. Mm -hmm. Book two is the book of the witch. Mm -hmm. Because the first half of the book is about Mary's attempts to extricate herself from a marriage. And the second half is about how far to the dark side will she go Mm-hmm. And will she wind up hanged? Yeah. And, you know, the tension and through those testimonies and 
just created this like this sense of dread i'm like oh my god what's going to happen now and it was such a brilliant trick that you played on us so well done thank you <laughs> I, <laughs> um let's let's talk about constant uh constance Constance, Constance Winston. Winston. She's one of my favorite characters. Absolutely. She's the sage older woman who says it like it is, who is not afraid to speak her mind. And she says to Mary, men call bright women, women dim when they are threatened. Right. And she kind of see it in Congress right now. Amen to that. Well, okay, so talk to us about Constance Winston and where she came from and give us a little more about her. Constance Winston, Constance Winston is a older woman, single, very important. That is very living important. alone before a certain That's girl. threatening, isn't it? it Being is. single is threatening. Yeah. Deeply threatening to men. And she becomes a role model to Mary. First, when she's 22 years old, Mary goes to see her to see about simples or natural remedies to become pregnant. Mm -hmm. She's now been married three years to this much older man who has a marriage from his previous wife, who's divorced, who's died, and she's not pregnant. Mm -hmm. The simples don't get her pregnant. But when all hell breaks loose, she goes to Constance for a different sort of cure to her problems. <laughs> and Constance yeah. is so threatening to the men. They can't pin anything on her yet. But they are just waiting. I mean, the reality is that whenever we think of witchcraft, we go right to 1692 Boston. Mm-hmm. But in 1662, when this novel is set, Hartford was hanging witches. And yeah. Boston was freaked out about it. In 1656, the governor of Massachusetts had his own sister-in-law hanged as a witch. Yeah. Do you think part of that was fear that if they didn't, that something might come back on them? Was it truly the fear of powerful women? I mean, you've done a lot of research on this. What, what conclusions have you come to? Two things. And you're really into something smart, so smart, Jennifer. It's a patriarchal society. Strong women are a threat to the patriarchy and to the hierarchy, you know, serpent, cow, Child, woman, man. Hmm. Secondly, they were terrified of Satan. How do you explain hurricanes? How do you explain ships that disappear in the harbor? Hmm. How do you explain smallpox? Hmm. How do you explain babies who die young? How do you explain mothers who die in birth? Mm the devil, <laughs> Satan, or as church lady would say, well, isn't that special? Satan. <laughs> That's great. That's a great callback to that. Uh, you know, 
<laughs> I, I loved learning about the Puritans and I wanted to talk about two things. One, did they drink water? Were they, they afraid water. of water? Okay. Yes. There's, they weren't, they weren't terrified of water, but again, they didn't understand antibodies, but you know, just as the Italians in the middle ages figured out that masks and cloaks somehow protected you from the black death. Mm. They'd begun to figure out that, well, we get a lot sicker from water than from beer. Mm-hmm. Um, now they obviously made their beer with water. Um, but the brewing process changed it. And so, yeah, they drank a boatload of beer. Yeah. And I, Madeira. When the and Madeira. boats would come in yeah. with Madeira, it was a like, good day in the Boston Harbor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. What did you find the most surprising about the Puritans? You know, two things. One good, one cataclysmic. Hmm. Here's the good. For a patriarchal theocracy, they were surprisingly progressive in some ways. The whole idea that divorce was legal surprised me. The whole idea that when a woman successfully divorced her husband, she received one third of the estate surprised me. I'm not saying one third is fair, but it's more than I expected. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Secondly, surprised by that too. Secondly, When we think of the Puritans, we go right to either Calvinism or witchcraft. Yeah. (laughs) But you know where we don't go? Hmm. The genocide of the Native Americans. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean... Their condescension to the indigenous people was mind-boggling. And mm-hmm. it was especially mind-boggling when you realize how terrified they were. Mm-hmm. Some of the first women were afraid to get off the boats because of the sand dunes. You know, these are city slickers from the Netherlands or England. Yeah. And the whole idea that the land moves terrified them. Hmm. And you go into the forest. Oh, my God. I don't know what scared them more. Mm-hmm. Satan or the indigenous people. And until um, the Phillips War, the indigenous people are the reason they survived. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I appreciated that you touched on that a little in the book. I mean, I realized that that's not what this book was about in terms of themes, but you certainly made a point of telling the reader that that this was happening. And, and I think it's an important point to be made. I read somewhere that 91% of indigenous people were wiped out during that time in American history. Yep. I don't know and if that percentage is of right, course, but yep, yep, you know, My alma mater is in a town named after the first European to use, well, bioweapons on the indigenous people. Lord Jeffrey Amherst putting smallpox 
Mm. One of the blankets they gave to the Native Americans. Mm. Yeah. Just crazy. It's mind-boggling. Well said. It's mind-boggling. Julie's joined us, so I know we're toward the end. I had lots more questions, but we want to be mindful of time. I I do want to say one thing for our listeners. If you haven't bought this book, it has a delicious ending. It is a fantastic book, The Hour of the Witch. <laughs> Please buy it from Warwick's. Support local. If you, if you don't buy it from Warwick's, get it from your local bookstore. It's such a good book. I am a huge fan, Chris. I will read all of your books, and I hope that this one is also turned into a movie. Thank you so much for this conversation. I appreciate your time. Jennifer, I appreciate <laughs> you so very much. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's, it was such a great conversation. I know we could have probably gone on hours and hours because there's so much to talk about on this. And But we do have some questions coming in from the audience. I want to be mindful of that, too. And I have one or two of my own that I need to throw in there. <laughs> but first, we'll start with the audience. Um, so Stephanie uh, Wilson first says she just finished The Hour of the Witch last night. She said superb and loved it. Um, she wants to know, did you know the ending of the novel before you started? And I think you covered that, but um, did you on this one or do you ever know the end when you do a? I have no idea where oh. my books are going. I depend wow, on my characters it. to take me by the hand and lead me through the dark of the story. Um, so the ending surprised me too. I'm obviously not going to reveal it, but I will tell you this. I always want my endings to be Aristotelian. That means two things. On the one hand, a little surprising. You think to yourself at first, oh my gosh, didn't see that coming. But then you take a step back and think, no, it couldn't have ended any other way. <laughs> That's something. That's really yeah. something because it's like, because you, I mean, I've heard authors talk about how they write themselves into corners or they, you know, get into themselves into situations where they have to kind of back out and do some lots of rewriting and stuff. But it's like to notice and to realize that it's like, couldn't have ended any other way. I love that. That's cool. I do. Yeah. Too. Now I've yeah. usually got in this very room behind me when I'm about three quarters of the way done, three massive whiteboards and dry erase markers. And using blue, red, and black dry erase markers, I'm literally writing down, if A does this, uh, what happens to B? Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. cool. Oh, I Very love that. Very cool. Um, okay, so our next question. And um, I just want to let, because I know some people came in um, towards the, you know, after it started. I want to let you know it is being recorded. You can catch the replay on our YouTube channel. So um, look for that. And also it'll be on Jennifer's Promise podcast if you need to too. And if you have any questions, go ahead and pop those into the Q&A. But Maxine has one. And Hi, Maxine. Hi, Maxine. Um, so she wants to know, how do you do research for your books? For example, how do you keep track of facts, notes, all that good stuff? I have an extensive library for every book filled with post-it notes. And I have a journal for every book that lists 
those golden nuggets that I know I'm going to use, which book they're in, and what the page number is. Now, Diana Gabaldon in her review of the of Hour of the Witch in the Washington Post last Friday said, often in historical research, we make this horrible mistake by showing off, look what I know. Mm-hmm. And in a good novel of the past, we don't do that. And, you know, fortunately, Diana thought ours, which was a, you know, very good historical fiction, but I didn't do that. A little research goes a long way. I mean, um, the fact they didn't have coat hangers, they had pegs. That's interesting, but you don't need to say it more than two or three times. Mm-hmm. The fact that they don't have electric lights. It's kind of obvious. You don't need to drive that point home. Mm. The things you drive home are the things about character. The character that's in their head. Why is Mary the way she is? Mm. What does it mean to Mary when she sees, okay, if Mary Deerfield is 24. In the novel, her husband is almost 50. So what does it mean to Mary when down by the docks, she sees, you know, Harry Styles. She sees this, you know, (laughs) super hot guy her age and she feels it. That's the historical stuff that matters because Mm -hmm. she feels it in a way that isn't once timeless, but different because it's 1662, not 2021. Right. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, yeah, Jennifer, that is, it's such a good point because it's, you have to create the atmosphere of the novel and Mm -hmm. that's not telling it's showing. So like you guys talked about earlier, the, you know, the, the language we are there, we are in this time period and it's so Mm -hmm. fabulous how we're just immersed seamlessly. We're not being told about the pegs and the, you know, the no electricity. It's just, the way we're talking, it just gets us yeah. there. It's spot on. Okay. Totally. <laughs> Another question. Another question. So Bethany, hello, Bethany. Hi, Bethany. Of all your books, which character has been the most meaningful or slash impactful to you? Emily Shepard. Hmm. Close your eyes, hold hands. One of my books that, well, by comparison, no one read. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, it did fine. It was a New York Times bestseller. But I mean, it, you know, it was like two. It wasn't six. Um, and I love her. You know, she's this teenage kid. She's a cutter. She's popping oxys like crazy. Her parents have died in a nuclear accident. They're Chernobyl of Vermont. And I worry about her all the time. I no. came out in 2014. I received an email from one of my nuclear experts. A Chernobyl expert two weeks ago, he said, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it's now been seven years. Emily Shepard is dead. Thanks. Wow. 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 Yeah. That's I'm not surprised that you worry about your characters. It doesn't surprise me at all. And Mary Deerfield, I'm not going to tell you how it ends, but I mean... Hour of the Witch is a novel of suspense. 
Yeah. It's a slow burn that gets hotter and hotter and hotter. And I worried about Mary all the friggin' time. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And I just, I, mm-hmm. you know, cause you talked about the pray, the, the, the prologue um, and about the, the person who didn't like, like you mentioned Jennifer people, you know, it wasn't, it had to be super bad for you to like go in that time period to, and I think it's super bad in any time period to go and, and get a divorce. I mean, I'm not sure that there's ever really that, oh, this is going to be easy because for a lot of women, you know, what's the Eagles words? Every refuge has its price. I mean, there is something that women sometimes will do because there are no other alternatives. And I think in that, particularly in that time period. Um, okay. One of the things I mean, that I, I mean, 31 divorces in 70 years in Massachusetts, insane. 31 and almost all of them, 29 of the 31 were because the husband disappeared. Yeah. Because the husband was having an affair or um, because it was discovered the husband had a wife back in England. Right. The abandonment mm. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Mm. Okay. I, what, I, and for those of you, I think we have a lot of your fans here. So they probably mm. know this or have come to events before, but I always love the one thing that you do, Chris, is when you look for a word Every day. And so when I read your books, you you go to your dictionary and you look at, up a word for the day. And so I'm always reading your books with, I wonder if that was one of the words that Chris found in the dictionary that day. <laughs> so I'm want wondering. Dic- want, want to see my dictionary? Yes. yes. And then I want to ask you if I picked the right word. Okay. <laughs> Yay. That's awesome, Julie. I want to I tell. Oh, there it is. Wow. I love actual dictionaries. It is and, so and heavy, so yeah. big. It has its own dictionary stand. Nice. I love Which that. version is it of Random House? I'm going to go out and second, buy it. Second edition. I have had it since 1986. Wow. Nice. That's incredible. It looks fantastic. Okay, so here's the word. Here's the word. Here's the word I want to know. It's on page three fifty-seven, and I'm not even going to be able to pronounce it. But did was it very similitude? Was that one of the words? Was that one of the might have been? It might have been. I'm not sure I've used or similitude in any other books. That could be it. Yep. I was just like, okay, what's the word? Do you keep a list somewhere of words that you've used? No, no, I don't. Okay. Okay. I don't. They just so become I, part of your vocabulary. Yeah. I remember I used, I've now used noctivigant twice. Okay. Mm, nice. All right. I love it. I love that part of it. It's kind of like, I always feel like it's an Easter egg I'm looking for in the book. It's like, yeah. what word did Chris have? Okay. We probably have time for one more question. Um, because we're running out of time here. So this is from anonymous attendee. So we don't know who you are anonymous, but Hi, anonymous. <laughs> we're going to answer your question. Um, which is the novel you enjoyed writing the most and why? I'm going to tell you two. Hmm. The Sandcastle Girls, a novel of the Armenian genocide, which was mm-hmm. wrenching because I'm a descendant of two survivors. 
but it was important because certainly in 2012, when the book was published, no one knew of the Armenian genocide. Mm. That was important. And I'm going to say Mary Deerfield and the Hour of the Witch was great fun to write because I've been obsessed with Puritan theology since I was 18 years old. Mm. The whole idea that I was writing a book where Satan is real. The devil is real. You fear the fires of hell. And, oh, by the way, you are a courageous woman standing up to the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. I've got a daughter. I've got a wife. That was really, really important to me. I mean, there's a reason this book is coming out a few days before Mother's Day. Because Mm. it's about women. Right. Yeah. And I I want to go ahead, Jennifer. Well, I just want to acknowledge that I I, was President Biden who acknowledged. I was just going to say the same thing. Yes. Just in the last couple of weeks. It was all my op ed. It was nice. I'm kidding. Really? I'm like, wow. I have no idea if you've read it. I've written at least a dozen op-eds over the years for Mm -hmm. the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the New York Times, the Fresno Bee, USA Today and Newsweek about this. Yeah, Fresno has a huge Armenian. I have relatives who are Armenian in in Fresno area that married into the family, into the um, Hmm. ethic. Um, Yeah, that was a big deal. I know that, Julie. Oh, yeah. I have an Azazian in the family. Cheers, right? (laughs) Genot. You have no idea what I just said. I no idea. You could have just cussed me out for all I know. Those I are the only cheers. I just said cheers. Thank you very much. <laughs> it is an honor to be here. Oh, it's a, that's lovely. It is an honor to have Genots? you. Genots? Genots. G-E-N-A-T-Z. Genots. I'm going to remember that one. <laughs> well, I was going to, when you were talking about the two books, I think be, um, Sandcastle Girls and this, if I'm not mistaken, I'm looking at my shelf of my my messy shelf. It's, those are the two historical ones that you, you really don't usually go very oh, far there are back. Two others. Are there two others? Okay. Oh, Skeletons at the Feast. Oh, which okay. I'm currently adopting for a TV series with Lou Diamond Phillips. Whoa, it's about, yay. you know, one German family's <laughs> complicity in the Holocaust. And um, the guest room, which Mm -hmm. I am adapting with Oscar winner Alex Dinalaris and Pulitzer Prize winner Martina Majok. Wow. Okay. Well, wait. What what time period was the guest period? I I don't remember the guest room then. Sorry. What was? Oh no. I'm sorry. The guest room is the present. The other historical fiction. I'm sorry. Is the light in the ruins? Yes. Italy in the 1940s. That's it. That's it. That's it. That. But I love that you're. I love that the guest room is going to be um, developed, though. That's really exciting. That's Thank awesome. You. you know what I'd like to say? I'd like to acknowledge how incredibly generous you are, Chris, just with your time and to your audience, and like getting to know you on Instagram and Twitter has been such a pleasure. I, I've got right to know you, for Grace. I know that's how you. Know, <laughs> you know, I love that's your Twitter handle. Well, it is my name. I mean, it's technically my my first and middle name, but Jennifer, Jennifer yes, Grace. Jennifer Grace, yeah. At Jennifer Grace on Twitter. But you know, not very many writers give so much and so humbly. And I just appreciate you so much. It's just been I hope everyone goes out and follows you on on social so that they can get to see the side of you that you know most people don't get to see of their favorite writers. It's you know it is no, I, love it. 
Go ahead, Julie. I'm sorry. No, I love that. I do too. I mean, I'm always going to second that with Jennifer because you are so generous with your time and readers love that. They love, mm-hmm. they love that touch that you give them. And mm-hmm. it's, it's really, I special. love my readers. I get to do this because of my readers. My gosh. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing too, I was going to say, you know, back to the things being developed, it's not easy people for things to get developed these days into any of these streaming things. And so it has to be something special. And Chris, for you to have as many things in the works is another mm-hmm. testament to your storytelling and your writing. Um, totally. Look for the Red Lotus in the next year or two. See, there Follow. you go. Awesome. Look at awesome. this. In season two of The Flight Attendant. Oh, I love it. Did it get season two? Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. I'm not oh. going to watch it till I read the book, I've decided. Yeah. Okay. I'd planned I, on watching it, but I really want to read it before I watch it. So. Yeah. It's a, it's a, the experience of watching and reading, obviously, are two different things, but it's, it's good. It was, it was a good yeah. adaptation. Really good. Great. Cool. Kaylee Coco is brilliant. Yeah. I have a quick question about the forks too. How hard is it to find those three tined forks now? Are they readily oh. available out there? The old ones? The old ones are, I bought eight of them from Etsy for about 20 bucks. Okay. <laughs> They're probably going to get more valuable now. Wait a minute. Do you serve them? Like, are you going to have a dinner party after COVID and serve with only three tined forks? Is that going to happen? You know, I had not thought of that, but you know, Jennifer, I am. And I'm, going wine. Tre- I'm going to have trenchers, Madeira, <laughs> tankards of ale. Yeah. Yep. I love it. I love I'll it. Fly out. Gonna, Let's do it. Everything's going to be made with cornbread and gourds and turnips. <laughs> I love it. Oh, God. <laughs> we'll come for the aesthetics. I'm not sure the food sounds so great, Chris. <laughs> hey, cornbread and turnips can be very good. The right, right. spices. All right. And I wanted to say John, Jennifer, John Irving makes the best mashed potatoes and turnips you've ever tasted. John Irving, the writer? Yeah. Who knew? I love John Irving. Who knew? I want his recipe. <laughs> Okay. Maybe he needs to we'll do it. Yeah. John Irving. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and Jennifer, I want to say too, um, Chris, your daughter, her middle name is Grace as well. Experience Grace. Is that correct? Her main name is Grace Experience. Grace That's Experience. Correct. Grace. Oh, the other way. Grace, Grace Experience. Experience. So you, yeah. you're Jennifer Grace and we've got Grace Experience who does the narrating, which I put into. And she's the, brilliant. Yeah. Thank you. She's brilliant. Yeah. Put she in is. that audio thing for the chat too, so that people can order that as well. Awesome. Thank you. We're out of Thank time. I, yep, we're out of time. I enjoyed this so much, Chris. It's always such a pleasure having you. Um, I can't wait until the next book, until you get to stay at the level. Yeah, everybody in the green room, we weren't here earlier when we talked. And and Chris, when he stays at the level, sometimes he just happens to crash weddings too. So. <laughs> oh, October 2022 is the next book. Oh. Okay, well, I'll get, I'll, I'll tell All someone done. to get married at that point. Yeah. All done. Yeah. All get done. somebody to get married there. Um, October 22 is your next book. Yep. Wow. All done. So it's already ready. Wow. Give Can you give us a hint? Yeah. Just a little. Yeah. Bit. Sure. It's called, okay. I loved Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, right. Here's my childhood. So the next book is called The Lions of Hollywood. It is set in 1964, Hollywood and the Serengeti, an Elizabeth Taylor type. 
Hollywood oh. superstar brings her newlywed entourage to the Serengeti where they're kidnapped by Russians and one by one they are eaten or killed. Whoa. Okay. I That's quite it. I love that. I, <laughs> I love, love it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, can't wait. Awesome. Jennifer, people can find you at the premise. Anywhere you find a podcast, it's the premise. Is that correct? And yes, but San Diego Writers Festival.com. This and all premise podcasts are there. Plus, the festival is July 17th and July 31st. So go to the website, check it out. You can Perfect. follow me at Jennifer Grace on Twitter. Perfect. And Chris Bojalian, for people, for you, I'm assuming just go to your website. Yes, chrisbojalian.com. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Goodreads. But before I say goodnight, I first of all want to thank you, Jennifer, for your great questions. Hmm. Julie, I want to thank you for all you do. The last 14 months have been hell. (laughs) Someone had said to me, we are going to lose the population of the equivalent of the state of Vermont. I think my knees would have buckled. Hmm. But Julie, you and Warwick's are a godsend. Mm-hmm. You are heroic. You are a front line. You are an institution. Mm-hmm. So everyone watching, buy a book from Warwick's. It doesn't have to be Hour of the Witch. But tonight, support this amazing world of books that has supported us during the year that Satan spawned. It's yeah. true. And support Warwick's. Totally. Yeah. Amen yeah, we try. We tried to keep people. We tried to give people something to divert them, and that was our goal. Is to, we know it's hard out there, and we know it was a really tough year. But we had a lot of authors that we needed to lift their voices and lift their stories, and um, we came through it. So thank you, Chris. I appreciate that very much. Um, mm-hmm. When we turn this off, we go away, Chris and Jennifer, so we don't go back into a green room. So. Good night, everybody. I'm sorry if we didn't get questions, but thank you. Happy Mother's Day. Take care. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, Jennifer. Bye-bye. Good night.